You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Well, thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. You are probably aware already, but as you read the Gospels, it's always good to keep a few things in mind about Jesus and his teaching. The first thing that we should always remember about Jesus' teaching is that Jesus has this tendency to say difficult things, even to respectable people. It's part of what makes the Gospels exciting, actually. If all we ever read about Jesus was, was the narrative of some soft-spoken man, and this message that he preached that made everybody feel good all of the time, it would probably get pretty boring pretty quickly. And so instead, uh, and, and realistically so, Jesus shows up in the gospel as someone who isn't afraid to tell it like it is. His words are always full of truth, and even when that truth might hurt. And so he calls the scribes and the Pharisees fools and hypocrites. He dismisses Herod as a fox. He refuses to answer those loaded questions when the teachers come trying to trap him in his words. And this is part of what we love about our Savior, that he didn't come kowtowing to the rich and to the influential. Quite the opposite. Often, Jesus put his finger exactly on the sins that so often masquerade as virtues in the eyes of the world. So the first thing we need to remember about Jesus' teaching is that he has this tendency to say difficult things. Secondly, we need to remember that when Jesus says those difficult things, we have the tendency to imagine that he's not speaking to us. It's what we love about those confrontations with the Pharisees, because we can imagine them in their pride and in their hypocrisy, and it allows us to convince ourselves that we're very much not like they are, actually. It allows us to feel safe when Jesus Jesus puts them in their place, and the truth is always easier to wield when it's cutting someone else. But what about when Jesus exposes the sins of materialism, covetousness? What about when Jesus dismisses a man who was just trying to get his fair share? What are we to think when the fool in Jesus' parable is a man who's only planning for an easy retirement? What are we to think of Jesus' difficult teaching when, when the sins that he exposes look so much like what we find in our hearts and what we see in our mirrors? In this passage, Jesus is exposing a lie. And it's a lie that's built upon the foundation of something that looks like the American dream. It's a lie that says so long as you have enough and so long as you attain enough and so long as you save enough of the things of this world that you're going to be happy. You're going to be secure no matter what comes your way. It's the lie that says, actually, your life does consist in abundant possessions. That's all you need. And so today, the challenge for us is going to be to come to this passage without assuming that it's meant for somebody other than us. This passage is for us. This passage is an indictment of all the foolish ways and the foolish things that we tend to focus our lives on, all of those wrong things that we focus our lives on. 
For one, I think we're tempted to focus on the thrill of getting more. That's our first point, the thrill of getting more. Verse 13, Jesus is dealing with an interruption here in his teaching. He's been having a conversation with his disciples, and it's been uh, a while since we were there. But if you look in the beginning of Luke chapter 12, you'll see uh, the verses leading up to this when Jesus has been teaching his followers about bearing witness to Jesus in a hostile world. He's warned them about persecution, and he's encouraged them with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Essentially, Jesus is talking about the, the witness and, and the way that the gospel is going to advance through their own suffering, and it's a heavy conversation. And into that solemn moment comes this man with his family dispute. Teacher, he says, tell my brother. In fact, he's not asking for Jesus uh, to take up the case. Rather, he's making a demand of Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. We read that interruption and we want to say, wow, this guy's pretty dense. He must, be, he must be one of those socially awkward people who just can't seem to read a room. He doesn't understand what's going on. Jesus is having this serious conversation and in bursts this man with his personal demands. And, and it is rather rude and it is an intrusion, but I think it's also a pretty good illustration of the way that our worldly cares tend to dominate our spiritual impulses. We've all had this experience. We've all sat down to focus on prayer and then find that our minds are, are wandering wildly to a thousand innate uh, distracting thoughts. And you know what it is to get to the end of a chapter in your daily Bible reading and then look up at the words you've just read and realize you didn't hear any of them. Your eyes were reading, your mind was maybe reading a little bit, but your heart was somewhere else. You were thinking about your mortgage or your job or your, your kid's violin lessons. And, and so I think once we cut this guy some slack, we realize he's a lot like us. He's got cares. He's got concerns that press in on his approach to God. He lives in the world of, of bills and responsibilities. In fact, he even seems to come to Jesus with something of a legitimate case. He brought his concern, his issue to Jesus, because he recognized Jesus as a rabbi. That is, he saw Jesus as a teacher of God's law. And in those days, in Israel, of course, inheritance issues and inheritance disputes were regulated by the law of God. Deuteronomy chapter 21 says, the firstborn has a right to a double portion of his father's wealth. So actually in this day, it was, it was pretty normal to seek out the scribes and the rabbis and, and the teachers uh, to, to deal with your disagreements over fi family finances. It was really just a matter of interpreting scripture. But whether he has a legitimate claim or no, Jesus simply refuses to get involved. That's because Jesus hasn't come to give us quick financial fixes. Here's where we get back to that issue of Jesus saying difficult things. The fact is, we don't know much about the situation in this man's family. The text doesn't tell us if, if he's come because he's some miserly, self-absorbed sinner. He comes to Jesus, at least, because he feels like he's been wronged, and for all we know, he might have been. He might have been sinned against by his older brother, who was withholding what ought to have gone to him. And if that's the case, there were some other places that he could have gone to uh, to talk about how the estate ought to be divvied up. But whether this man was being cheated, whether he was being treated fairly, Jesus is warning him, and he's warning us that the real problem here 
was not about whether he was wronged or whether he was righted. The real problem was a fixation on getting more than he had already. Take a look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, that is probably the disciples around watching the exchange, he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. And so obviously Jesus knows something about this man and his situation that we don't know. He read the motive of his heart, as he often does. He read the motive of his heart, even behind this legitimate request. Jesus knew that his real problem was covetousness. Maybe your translation, if you've got a different one, maybe it says greed. His problem was, as another pastor said, his problem was resenting God's goodness to someone else while ignoring God's goodness to himself. So, Jesus warns, guard against all covetousness. That is, against greed in every form that it might show up in. Guard against any foothold that it has to climb its way into your life. Guard against the desire to gain more and more and more for yourself, and guard against it even if the road to more is paved with legitimate and honest circumstances. You've seen it happen. Maybe you saw it happen in regard to a, a family inheritance. You've watched grown siblings fight and bicker over what to do with the family home, and you have seen uh, resentment plow deep furrows between family members for decades. Why? Because somebody wasn't happy about who got the grandfather clock. Because the sisters were fighting over which one got the emeralds and which one got the rubies. And you see these things in real life. You see it in smaller ways, too. You see it in the way that you are able, quite frankly, to talk yourself into any purchase. It doesn't matter if you can afford it or not, so long as if you want it enough, you can convince yourself, I need that. I need to have something new right about now. That's what would help me out. That you see it in the way that you're secretly convinced, perhaps, that you could make it through all of this social isolation stuff if only you had that new video game. Or some brighter curtains to make you feel cheery. Maybe a little bit bigger home. If only you could go to the store and just buy that pair of shoes that would make you feel so good. You see it all the time in the way that Apple and Samsung managed to be able to sell the same phones to the same people year on year with incremental adjustments. Why? Because they convince us that the new thing we don't have is much better than the old thing we already possess. Maybe gadgets aren't your thing. Maybe it's that new fly fishing rig. Maybe it's a new pair of running shoes. Maybe it's that shiny new SUV that your neighbor just got. Maybe it's a new longboard. Maybe it's whatever it is. But we know how this works. And then again, maybe you're not snared by these things. And if you aren't, I'm very happy for you. I'm happy for you, but I have to confess that I'm not there with you yet. You see, my sanctification is still very much a work in progress, and I find it hard to believe that my life doesn't actually consist in all of my gadgets and my baubles and my possessions. If I'm honest, I find it hard to believe that the quality of my life doesn't actually depend on how many square feet I have in my home. And wouldn't it be nice if we had just enough to have a little addition Maybe a, maybe a spare room, maybe a woodshed somewhere in the backyard where I could, I could put all of these things so I could stop tripping all of this stuff that's all around me. And certainly I wouldn't be so foolish to have some more space and just fill it up with more stuff, right? I wouldn't be that person. Now, that's not a sob story about my salary, by the way. 
Uh, I'm not complaining over the size of my home. I'm simply illustrating the way that greed works in our lives. It whispers secretly, quietly into our ears that we would be a little bit happier if we had just a little bit more. And once we get that little bit more, then we'll be satisfied. That's all we need, just a tiny little bit. But greed doesn't work that way. It never stops there. Covetousness is like the goldfish because it grows to fill whatever bowl you put it in. Another author said that greed is a fat demon with a small mouth. He said, whatever you feed it, it's never enough. So Jesus tells us, be on guard against that approach to life. Fight against the impulse to pine over the things that you wish that you had, against the impulse that you have to focus your life's attention on the thrill of getting more. He also warns us against focusing our lives on the security of having enough. Those are our two main points today. The way the fool's life is focused on the thrill of getting more and on the security of having enough. Now, beginning in verse 16, Jesus tells a parable to illustrate how it is that this lure of materialism snags so many hearts. Why is it that we're so prone to believe that our life consists in our abundant possessions? And we could summarize the parable by saying that our, our possessions actually preach to us a false gospel. That gospel uh, that our possessions preach to us promises us security. You notice, don't you, by verse 19, the man in the parable has begun to convince himself that he has life locked down. He's got so many good things laid up for so many years that there's nothing left to worry about. He can take it easy. He can live the good life. That's what we're tempted to believe by our possessions and by having more of them. John Calvin wrote about this. He said, the general belief is that a man is happy in proportion to his possessions and that happiness is produced by riches. Fred Allen put it a different way. He said, there are many things in life that are more important than money, and they all cost money. Now, that's the false gospel that materialism preaches to us, that if we have enough, you will have all you need. If you can get more possessions, if you can get to that attainable level where you can look and say, I've got all I need, now I've got life locked down. Now, there are uh, several things we need to notice about the man in this parable. Four things we want to see about him uh, in particular. First, we notice that this man is rich. In fact, that's the way he's introduced to us. It's the first thing we learn about him. The land of a rich man produced plentifully. <clears throat> and that's important because it keeps us from thinking somehow that covetousness is a sin that only affects the have-nots right? That, that we think that covetousness and greed is about looking at the people who are above us and trying to move up some imaginary ladder, some economic ladder to get to another stage. Well, actually, greed and covetousness can be about anxiously protecting the things that we already have, maintaining where we are. He's already a rich man. He's not looking up at somebody else, but he's imagining how wonderful it will be to continue as this rich man for, for many years ahead. So this is a rich man. His, his riches also help us understand that he's a lot like us, actually. You know, rich is a relative term. It's a sliding scale, and it moves depending on who you compare yourselves to. So if we look in the news this week and see that Jeff Bezos has 
Uh, he's bought a $16 million condo in New York City. We look at somebody like that and we say, wow, I'm, I'm pretty poor, aren't I? All of us are poor by that standard. But if we compare ourselves to Jesus, who had nowhere to lay his head, when we compare ourselves to the, the 10% of the world population, 780 million people who live on fewer than $2 every day, actually, we live like kings. And so like us, this man is, is a rich person. Secondly, this man has been blessed by God. Now, what is it that we see as we look at this parable? Do we see the, the sort of Hollywood portrayal, the, uh, the 19th century fat cat factory owner? And he's there squeezing the life out of his hourly workers just to turn a quick buck. Is that what we see? Do we see Ponzi schemes? Do we see foul play? Do we see some miser who's, who's devouring widows' inheritances? That's not what we see at all. This man comes into abundance because it tells us that his crops, his land, produced plentifully. He's done some work, I'm sure. He's, he's made good choices. He's hired people to go out and to work in his fields. He's rotated his crops. He's done all of that good stuff, but none of that is the focus. The text simply tells us that his land produced plentifully. That ought to make us think of another parable that Jesus told. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26, Jesus said the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. And he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. That's how it goes, actually. One man plants, another man waters, but God gives the growth. So where did this man get all of his abundance? He got it from the Lord. He got it from the maker of heaven and earth. He got it from the one who feeds the animals and waters the mountains. What a blessing, we think, to be so blessed. In fact, he's blessed so much that his problem is what to do with it all, where to put it all. And so he still looks a lot like us, this rich person who's been blessed by the Lord. But that brings us to the third thing that we need to notice about him, and that is that this man seeks his own advice. This is where things start to go sour. Jesus tells us that this man is a fool. That's what God says about him. He's a fool in the biblical sense. And so we ought to interpret this, this passage, this parable, uh, in terms of wisdom and folly. What is the first principle of biblical wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Proverbs tells us, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's what he should have done with all of his abundance. His crop is so large that he can't put it in the barns that he owns. And what he should have done is commit his plans to prayer. He should have spent some time meditating on God's word. He ought to have asked, what is the best thing that I can do with my possessions? How can I honor the Lord who has blessed me? How can I serve my fellow creatures? That's what he should have done. Instead, verse 17 tells us that he thought to himself. Actually, the word is reasoned. Better yet, the word is dialogue. He began a conversation in himself with himself. He spoke to himself and took his own wisdom. He had a conversation where he consulted his own little wisdom about his own little problem. Of course, he comes away with his own little solution to benefit his own little kingdom. 
And so instead of recognizing God's goodness with gratitude, he figures out a way to focus his wealth on securing his future. Actually, it goes pretty well. That's the fourth thing we see about him, that this man makes wise financial decisions. Economically speaking, he's made some pretty good investments, or at least he's planning pretty good investments. It's all in his head so far. He's thinking about what he ought to do and what the best thing to do is. And remember, his riches aren't in stocks in Bitcoin. It's not in the ether somewhere. These are crops. These are riches that need to be stored somewhere. If he can't put a cover over all this grain, it's all going to rot and it's all going to be a waste. And so he does what anyone in their right mind would do. He decides he needs a bigger storage facility to put all of these riches. And maybe someday he'll be like, like Joseph. Maybe he'll be this, this wise husbandman who, who has more than enough for himself. And then if the economy takes a bad turn, well, then maybe he could reach into his stores and sell to other people and he can live off the revenue for many years. We understand the enticement, don't we? The enticement of possessions. You see, worldly abundance tempts us to think that we can be like this man. We can be hardworking, honest. We can be wise, maybe a little bit blessed. And then if the Lord causes the lot to fall into our lap, we can take and we can stockpile all of our possessions and we can live in happiness for the rest of our days. And his retirement is all planned out. He has nothing to do but turn himself over to, to make sure the sun gets on his back as well as on his front. He has nothing to do but sit and eat and drink and be merry. He's got it made. His retirement's going to be full of feasting and enjoyment and never-ending dividends. Except that he seems to have forgotten just one tiny little detail. Just a little thing, really. Uh, just a slight variable that could potentially rearrange his plans. This man has forgotten God Almighty. In the excitement over all of his possessions and over all the security that he's laying away for himself, he has forgotten the one who created his wealth in the first place. He's forgotten the one who loaned him his very life and his soul. He's forgotten the one who's now coming to collect on his property. Verse 20, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? And the answer is, it doesn't really matter because they're not going to be his. Maybe they'll go to a child. Maybe they'll go to somebody else. Maybe they'll, they'll just be dispersed among the community. But, but the point is, all of the security he thinks he has will be gone. It's rare, actually, in one of Jesus' parables to hear the voice of God. To think about the parables, remember that they're very often full of earthly elements to teach us spiritual truths. So we read the parables and we, we find things like seeds and sheep and wheat and tares. The parables show us fish in nets. They show us trees without fruit. They show us salt without taste and, and pearls before swine. Here's a parable where heaven actually shows up. Jesus, I think, is pulling back the curtain to reveal how silly we are when we engross ourselves with our tiny little corner of creation, and we forget that there's a God of wisdom and eternity who rules over all of it. 
in the Carnegie Science Center in uh, Pittsburgh, there is a model railroad display uh, that is, is wonderful to go and look at. It's over 100 years old. The display began in 1919 in the home of a man named uh, Charles Bowdish. And since that time, in 101 years, it has been expanded. It's been in several other museums uh, now in the, in the Science Center, but it's expanded to the point that it now covers 2,500 square feet. It has all the trains, but it also includes 105 moving animations. It has 85 cars, 60 trucks. It has a flowing river three inches deep, and it has more than 250,000 handmade miniature artificial trees. It is a magnificent, mesmerizing work of art, but it's all just this tiny little make-believe world. I think when God speaks in Jesus' parable, it's as if we get to watch all of those tiny painted creatures imagining all of their animatronic futures and forgetting that there is a grand artist who's arranged all of the scenes exactly as he sees fit. You fool, God says. Focusing on the created world, amassing things in heaps all for yourself, forgetting that there is a reality and there is a judgment beyond what you can see. Really, that's the problem with greed and with covetousness. The problem with materialism is that it turns us into materialists. It makes us forget the God who made us. We begin instead to believe that our possessions have been obtained by us in order to be used by us so that they can benefit us. Materialism seeks security in things that pass away rather than the God who is and was and always will be. And so Philip Ryken says this man thought he had a storage problem. Actually, he had a spiritual problem. He was an atheist, at least functionally so. At least he never went through life thinking, or at least we don't get a, a picture of it here, that he's wondering about how to honor God with what he's got. And that, by the way, is the biblical definition of a fool. Psalm 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool gives himself to material possessions because they're the only thing that feel like satisfaction and security. The fool finds value in enjoying everything that life has to offer. The fool finds purpose in eating and in drinking and in making merry because he cannot imagine anything beyond food and drink and entertainment. And it's a warning to us. It's a reminder that if we are those who spend our days seeking security in our possessions, we're going to come to a day that both our days and our possessions will be taken from us. Those who lay up treasures for themselves without being rich toward God will face the judgment that is fit for a fool. And so what we need is a bit of biblical wisdom when it comes to handling our possessions. We need to learn how to honor God with our wealth. And yes, that means all of the normal things, all the charities that you think of when you think of, uh, of Christian charity. You think of giving money to kingdom work. Yes, that's what it means. It means planning beyond your retirement so you can steward your finances towards spiritual needs in the church. Being rich toward God isn't actually about making sure that the pastor's house is a little bit bigger, but it might mean that you need to choose a smaller house for yourself. 
might mean that you need to choose a slower computer or an, or an older automobile so that you've got money to send to missionaries to places where Christ has not been named. Being rich toward God uh, means exactly what Jesus says down in verse 33, though we try to find some spiritual way to twist it. And Jesus tells his people to sell their possessions and give to the needy. Being rich toward God means literally doing those things. Richness toward God looks like all of this, but the truth is that even if you could somehow manage to change your portfolio to make a few more gospel-centered investments, you'll never be able to give your riches to God from the heart until you're convinced that security isn't found in what you own. And that's what the real gospel is all about, not the fake one that we get preached to us from our possessions and our, and our goods. In the verses that follow the passage that we read today, uh, Jesus is teaching his disciples about trusting God with their daily lives. He teaches them about God's care and his, his provision. He teaches them about the way that God knows exactly what his children need before they ever ask him. Then in verse 32, he sums it up and he speaks peace to their anxious hearts. He says this, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And that's the remedy. That's the antidote to the false gospel of possession. You see, the man in the parable approached life from a position of independence. He thought because he had many goods, he had all that he needed. And so he didn't think about anybody around him. He didn't think that he needed anything from anyone else. He was the quintessential self-made man. Jesus says that real security doesn't come from wealthy independence. Real security comes in knowing that your life is in the hands of your father. Real security comes when we begin to steward our resources out of a sense of trust in the God who has proven himself trustworthy. And so God leads the way. He gives his own charitable giving. He sends his beloved son to be the investment in our security. He gives his son to pay the debt of our sin. He sends Christ into the world, the one who was rich so that he might become poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become immeasurably rich. And when you've learned to trust in that God with your salvation, well, then all of your stuff doesn't seem so important anymore. Folks, this is the call of Christ for all of us today. Recognize that this is talking about us as well. It's called to change the way that we handle our possessions, but not to do it so that we can somehow attain to some new spiritual height, but rather to realize and to trust in the God who gives to his children. It's only then that we begin to focus our life on the right things instead of all of the wrong things. So Christ tells us today, fear not, be rich toward God because he has been immeasurably rich toward you. Would you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you. You have taught us that you are trustworthy. You have proven your love for us by sending your son into the world. As we read and see ourselves, perhaps, in these pages, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us wisdom. Wisdom to love you more than we love the things that catch our eye. Wisdom to serve one another with what you've given to us. Wisdom to give to your church and to your gospel. 
wisdom to hold loosely to all the things of this life, because we know that our security isn't found in them. Oh Lord, would you teach us to walk with you in trust and obedience, and with a richness toward you, with all that you have given to us to steward, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well now, uh, brothers and sisters,